This episode is dedicated to Matt Wimberly, Adriana Aguirre, Chas Allen, and Gush for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Dan. And this is Southpaw. This conversation between Sam and Dan has been broken up into two parts. The first part, which you are listening to now, is Dan Tom's Guide to MMA Analysis. Part 2 gives you a primer on MMA gambling. It also covers how general MMA analysis differs from MMA analysis when there's money on the line. Sam and Dan also discuss the chances for fight fixing in MMA, since gambling is now so accessible. It's available now on Patreon. Today on Southpaw, we have combat sports writer, analyst, and gambling expert, Dan Tom. Hi, Dan. Hey, what's going on, Sam? It's been rough, I think, for both of us, right? Yeah, man. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's not been easiest for, uh, you know, the, the hashtag AAPI or, you know, Asians uh, in general, but uh, was really pleased to get your invite, man. Really like what you guys do here on the Southpaw pod and uh, glad to be here, man. So I plan for this episode to be more of a perennial episode for people to listen for years to come. And I'm calling this episode Dan Tom's Guide to MMA Analysis and Gambling. So let's start at the top. How did you become an MMA writer and analyst? Uh, basically, uh, by accident. I, I was told to, to do writing through a lot of people from like college professors or like a lot of people, uh, meaningful people, but I never really took it seriously. Um, and uh, I, I always did martial arts since I was a kid, all different types. And I always got roped into like a uh, teaching uh, a lot of the times and found that often I was a better teacher than I was a competitor, um, which you'll find that sometimes your favorite competitors or fighters, they're not, uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're the best teachers, right? Um, and I think that's something that you realize as you go. And I, I was a bit slow to realize that. 
Um, and uh, after you know being pushed into that role by enough of you know uh, you know uh, enough uh, you know coaches, um, Neil Melanson was was one that really wanted me to you know would, would have me do his uh, his general classes and you know like the more basic classes to start. Even though I was probably only like a you know blue belt level at the time, to be honest, um, but it, 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 I really liked it. And if anybody credits my writing and and stuff for analysis, it's I, I credit it to teaching because for me, it's just kind of explaining things or you know how I would try to explain or you know describe something you know in a lesson or as far as how a move works. And there's a lot less of that because a lot of my analysis is predictive analysis, hence the gambling, which you were too kind on that intro. Um, but, but, but yeah, I, uh, I still competed nonetheless and, and to, to finish this long winded answer and how I came about the other part to this job was that, um, I was training for my second amateur fight and received probably a many of many, one of many concussions over the years. Right. But we weren't educated, especially in the nineties coming up about that kind of stuff. And it was a really bad one. And, uh, I, 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 it got me off the mats. I could barely drive. I lost a corporate job that I had at the time. But thankfully, uh, one of my coaches, uh, rest in peace, Robert Fallis, um, you know, he also kind of saw those similar things in me. And it's like, dude, you're going to go nuts. Why don't you, you at least break down martial arts, you know, um, on the side, you do a really good job. I've seen you done written stuff for Extreme Couture's website before. And, you know, he's he, he seen me on the mats or teaching and working with people. And, um, and so I said, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. A friend of mine helped with a website on my 30th birthday. And uh, next thing you know, good thing I started this side project because I lost my corporate gig from the uh, from the really bad concussion symptoms, um, which is why I wear these sweet glasses. If anybody sees me with my big old hipster glasses, they do have a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I went most of my life without glasses. Now I'm, I'm getting like prescription updates every year. Uh, thanks to being hit in the head, folks. Try to avoid it if you can. But uh, the, the, the story uh, obviously parlayed into a positive because it brought me your question uh here and in, in the this side of the cage if you will then how did you get hooked up with mma junkie you know i had a long relationship with Go goes and george um you know from when they were tag radio before they were kind of bought by or you know absorbed by mma junkie which was like pretty much john morgan and dan step at the time and then of course the usa today deal came about a decade ago or over a decade ago i should say now um, and they were doing their thing. It was always kind of my homepage. Like I would set instead of Google, like it is now, it was like MMA junkie back in the day, like 2008, 2009, just in my strictly fan fan days. And they would actually invite me on. Like to, they interviewed me before my first amateur fight. Um, you know, I, I would call in and, uh, oddly enough, I would give predictions and it was my analysis that made me stuck out and got me kind of acceptance by the hardcore callers in the show. Um, got me invited on to co-host the show. And, you know, you fast forward later, I, I started with MMA Latest over in the UK. Then I got picked up by Flow Combat shortly over here in Texas, United States. Um, and then um, got over, you know, once I had a body of work and already had this relationship. Um, yeah, it, was, it took about a year behind the scenes, as the things often do. But I was eventually brought on board over to MMA Junkie. Uh, and uh, so it was kind of... Uh, Kind of a cool little uh, full roundabout story, if you can, you know, you consider where I, I guess I started as far as my fandom to actually like, have a byline there. It's still kind of crazy to me, to be honest. But yeah, it's kind of unusual compared to how other people got in because you went from podcast guest to MMA writer analyst, and now you're a podcaster yourself. 
Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm coming full circle there too because I feel like I, I like being a guest a lot more than hosting my own show. But yeah, um, you know, the the talking opportunity certainly helped. It was a natural thing I've always kind of liked, you know. So maybe it's whether it's like the background and like doing acting or just growing up listening to Howard Stern and stuff like that obviously wasn't a hard thing, but how I chose to get in initially was hard because it was not just written analysis, but, and I try to shorten my stuff up now, especially, you know, that's how bigger sites like it, let's just say, right? (laughs) But like, if you go look at my older work, like I'll keep writing if you don't tell me to stop, you know, I'm like, I'm like, uh, you know, maybe it's the, the part Japanese in me, but I'm like those Japanese World War II soldiers who it's like, you know, it's 82 and they're still like, is, are, we, are we still going? <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. So like, I'll take things a little too literally sometimes, but yeah, you know what? It's less saturated, you know, all the good shows when I was in a hardcore band, a punk rock hardcore band, all the good bands, all the good shows were in Cali. We would go to California and do weekend trips and we'd be like, oh, Vegas sucks, man. It's all 21 and older. They just want like, you know, they don't want the straight edge bands because they can't sell alcohol. We had to travel, but then we're like, you know what? Let's embrace this. We're in not as saturated of a scene and therefore we can stick out and be that Vegas band that gets booked other places. And we really sucked, but we outshot (laughs) our coverage because of that mentality. You know, you come up and so that was kind of my approach with attacking um the scene was like okay i'm I'm gonna lose a lot of people most people won't even step into that door but there's not a lot of long form and at the time and now there's so much good analysis there's so many more experienced people in the media space but at the time there's a real lack of martial arts voice in the media space so that was my deal so you were also involved with acting and music yeah i know it feels like another freaking life ago but yeah i uh I did like, I always loved, you know, movies and stuff growing up. My sister did theater and I, I I would do theater, you know, and the same teachers kind of following her up in school, did it a bit in college, got some paid acting gigs, was even with, uh, under this guy, Gerald Gordon, he, Adrian Brody's probably one of the more popular like student names, but like the dude's been around since like the seventies. He's probably dead now. Rest in peace, Gerald. But, uh, it was, and, 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 you know, and, and in short, um, I went from that to, uh, embracing my more punk rock rebel stage and got in a van and was singing in a band shortly because I realized, and it, I don't want to, this isn't, this, this is bad to say, but like, I don't want to say like, uh, or give into that narrative, but you know, there was a lot of, I realized that there wasn't a lot of work for Asians, much less mixed Asians, much less mixed dark Asians, much less mixed dark Asians with tattoos. Like if, if hell froze over and they gave us our own sitcom, they were going to go with more, you know, air quotes, Jackie Chan wrote. Uh, not to be offensive, but just to kind of draw a better picture there, the, then much less, you know, get into anything nuanced. So I'm like, you know what, let's, uh, let's embrace this music thing where like, there's just a bunch of, you know, people and crazies and, you know, from all, all scopes. And, uh, yeah, I got into music for a while, which I have always loved. Wasn't very good. Hence I was in a, <laughs> hence I was a singer of a punk, hardcore punk rock band, but you know, produce some some fun times in a van and and good memories uh, en route to this uh, martial arts stuff. Well, martial arts before, in between, and after, I should say. Because a lot of people who come from that scene tend to be also very anti-racist, very anti-fascist. And so that explains a lot. Yeah. I mean, I was just having, I was telling a funny story of like the biggest fight I ever was witness to. It was like literally a whole basketball court of, of fighting going on. And it was, it was in Southern Utah. But a lot of the Salt Salt Lake kids came down, and I always joked, it's like, I don't know if it's the stereotype of Utah good and Mormons or whatever, like they feel they have to rebel, 
but like whether it was the straight edge kids or the skinhead kids, they were extra mean, right? <laughs> and but they were, but I have to explain to her. I'm like the straight edge kids were extra mean is because Salt Lake was primarily, and they may touch on this and like Hollywood SLC punk or whatever, but it was it was a heavy skinhead scene. So the reason why the straight edge kids were almost so militant and like you know even us straight edge kids were like, whoa, easy guys, like you don't gotta like punch someone for smoking a cigarette, relax. Um, but like they came up in like a really violent skinhead scene and they had to kind of fight for their. And I'm not making it okay, but it just it, you you you're right. You're absolutely spot on. There's a there's a there's a big crossover lineage there, and um, you know I, I don't know what the hell to consider myself is. I definitely was like a nonviolent kid, or I tried to be, but yeah. If 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 any if any skinhead showed up, I definitely had that punk rock mentality in me where I was the first in line. <laughs> <laughs> and also to give people some background, the racist Nazi skinheads they kind of took over the scene. I think historically skinheads weren't necessarily racist right it was just a type of subculture within punk that even had british jamaicans involved and then it became co-opted yeah they're sharp skins if that's what you're referring to and like skinheads against racism and it developed all these other blocks but yeah sorry no go ahead you're spot on no i think also that's where some of the fighting came in is when it was getting co-opted they had to like try to physically fight to keep the scene clean so the punk scene and the fighting if you think about the conditions that they came up in, the fighting all makes sense. Sure. And that's kind of how, oddly enough, I got a lot of my acceptance. I was never big into like being like a straight edge gang. For me, it was just an offshoot of martial arts, treat your body like your temple. I'm like, oh, sweet. I can, I was kind of already doing this, but I can, I can fit in and do it. Uh, unlike in high school, I'm like, okay, let's, let's give this a shot. Um, but it, it wasn't until, you know, like most places you have to be, you know, whether you know, my brief brushes with security or this or that. Most people don't look at you like a threat and will look at you the opposite. But then you get into a fight or something and all of a sudden people are your best friend. Like, oh, look at, you know, it's like that That somehow, I guess, proves your value. But um, there was certainly a lot of that, too, I remember. And to also connect you and I together and maybe even date myself. You know, I grew up doing martial arts since I was six. My family moved from Korea to the U.S., California first, and then from there moved to Oregon. And in Oregon, I was, I don't know if fortunate is the right word, but I saw UFC 1. I wasn't like one of those people who discovered it later. And I'm old enough to have seen it when it came out. Oh, wow. So when I saw it, everybody I knew wanted to train in it, but there was no BJJ schools. There was nothing. So if you look at old black belt magazines or like ultimate grappling or like some of the older magazines, they talked about this style of like grassroots training where you would actually get belted. People were making fun of online training, but back in the day, like training over the mail, even in Brazilian jiu-jitsu was not that weird. People would get belted in that way. It's funny that later on, some of the black belts used to talk so much crap about online curriculum when they were doing the same mail order type of training, they would send you DVDs and you train it. You would just have to invite them over for a seminar. So that's how it works. So there was this like big grassroots training scene happening in the Pacific Northwest, which Robert Fallis was a part of also. Huh. I don't even know if he actually ever even took a BJJ class, but from that grassroots like self-learning training, he was able to get very good. And that's the same way like I had to do it initially is we had to train ourselves from like the old Craig Kukuk DVDs. And I met him in that way back then. And then when I moved to LA, I was able to finally get formal training under uh, a guy named Gokor Chivichian and Gene LaBelle and Caro. Oh, wow. So I was already training there for a while. And then this guy named Neil Melanson came in. So I was actually ahead of Neil training there. Holy so he, crap. He came up after me. Yeah. 
I'm getting goosebumps, by the way. Keep going. <laughs> so, uh, and it's funny, it's because like Gene LaBelle and Gokord never used the term catch. Like they didn't feel comfortable with that because they wanted to create a system that encompassed everything. So they just called it grappling and it would be a lot of like unsanctioned fights happening. And like, I, that's <laughs> yeah. how they kind of got a sense like, oh, should we now make you pro? Because they have connections to the UFC. So basically, it was a very dangerous training environment. And if they invited you to do some weekend special training, then it wasn't even training. You might be just thrown into an unsanctioned fight and you didn't even know. So <laughs> yeah. that's the kind of wild training that I came up in with Neil for a while. And then uh, I think he went blind and then. Yeah, he, even when I met him, was a lot more inquisitive than everybody else, even myself. So he was learning at a faster clip. Even though we were all ahead of him, he was learning faster than all of us. And then when later on I heard that he was a coach, it didn't really surprise me. So there's our connection and there's dating myself where I was starting in MMA Wow, way back then. So, so you're like my, you're like my older, older brother for sure in more ways than one. <laughs> Look at that. That's awesome. Uh, my, I'm getting goosebumps over here and that's... All that's spot on, man. Even the, you know, the, the, you're right. They didn't want to use the term catch. And there was very generalist in their terms for a reason, despite, um, arguably having, you know, um, some specifics to their style, you know, being real first on that leg lock game, uh, or, you know, early, uh, you know, I mean, even for me, and I'm, I'm later than you, right? But I felt like I, you know, we had an early edge understanding the leg lock game, you know, uh, cranking it out from years 2008 to 2011. Whereas, you know, since 2011, it's just erupted, you know, people started finally accepting it more in the more mainer streams. But yeah, man, that's, that's awesome. And you're totally right. Uh, Neil told me a a lot of stories where he would show up and uh, get his ankle broken and nose broken and he was in a fight and he didn't even realize why. And during that time, it was especially bad (laughs) because ambulance was there every week. I've seen so many spiral fractures. It was a different time back then. But in Vegas, wasn't even like Daniel Bryan like training yep. there too? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When he first came from again, rounding your neighborhood, came from the Pacific Northwest. He was trying to put on weight so the WWF or WWE. I'm sorry, I always know it is F. Uh, dating myself, but um, just to get a look at him, and they called him, I think, the Dragon, and he had a violence T-shirt that I wish I still had around because I'm sure that would be like a collector's because he he went on to do all these things, but. Yeah, it was, it was a breeding ground, just like the seminars you referenced, like a lot of these, you know, more, and I'm trying to date you, I mean this respectfully, but the more older school heads, if you listen to their stories, a lot of it's like, oh, I met this guy at a seminar because outside of the VHS tapes and this, the self-learning, like you really had to capitalize on those. It wasn't like now where you're like, nah, in Vegas, especially, you're just like, oh, this guy's here, that guy's there. Oh, it's, it's okay. I'll catch him on the next time around. Like what? So Going back to analyzing fights. Sure. When you're analyzing a fight, do you watch it with or without commentary? Uh, I do both. I try to actually do more without. It's been, um, it's something that, you know, a a lot of people have long been doing and for good reason. Um, It's just depending on how I'm parsing it out. A lot of the times it's, I'm good at tuning it out and not letting it bias me, which is usually why I have some of the more dissenting scorecards is because I'm not listening to the live broadcast where right or wrong, uh, you know, it's really hard to to mark on subjective things like judging. That being said, I, I still do believe that commentary can very easily get biased. And if it is, it very easily influences, right? Um, th- that being said, sometimes uh, if I'm just like doing, because again, I used to like be hardcore pencil through, I have to watch, sit down and watch everything on every fighter. And 
even though I'm, I'm blessed to do this full time, it's, you can't like f- physically do that, especially with the UFC schedule. Or if I have to write for Bellator or maybe do a piece for PFL or, you know, whatever the, the schedule gets in, too insane. Like if we look at, you know, not the timestamp, but April coming up. So I got to pick and choose and also get, you know, our day-to-day stuff done. So there's a, there's a term, Sam, I don't know if you're familiar, like well, there's a TV term that like network execs that I believe it was something like, is this, is this dish, is this a uh, dishwashing material or something? And I apologize if I get that wrong, but essentially what it was in reference to is we want to make this so simple that is usually notes. If you're, if your quality, if your, if your product was too well-written, we want to make this so simple that the, and not to use a sexist term, but this is kind of how they, they, they put it that, you know, the wife washing dishes can still follow along with the TV show without having to physically watch it. And um, even though when I'm doing some kind of dishes or a smoothie, I still will have a, my laptop or an iPad right in front of me so I can kill two birds with one stone. In those instances, I'll actually turn the commentary up, but I also plan what I watch. This isn't a match that per se, I need to see the striking. With the striking, you really need to watch real time. You need to be focused. However, if I'm like, you know, especially the UFC.com has done a more poor job. They used to tell you which round the takedowns occur in. And most stat, t- stat sites just tell you a general over the fight. So I'm like, okay, I want to see how this guy defends a takedown, but there was only three shot in a 15 or 25 minute fight. That's going to take a lot of time for a specific thing. So those ones, I'll turn the commentary all the way up and I'll kind of get stuff I need to get done around the house. And when I hear, oh, and he gets taken down or shoots a takedown, but misses it, then I'll go back and rewind. Okay, this is what I need to, this is, this is what I was looking for. So I I try to uh, divvy it up in in, uh, those things as far as commentary wise, whether I'm listening or not. When you're making predictions for an upcoming fight, how much of the research has already been done beforehand from memory? And how much of it do you have to start fresh by analyzing tape? You know, the one criticism you could really say of me, and especially when I'm stressed and, um, you know, going through the week and I still don't get what I want to get done and I've wasted and I've still wasted a whole week analyzing a card. Um, it's easy to be like, dude, you, you, you are definitely, um, not, you're working too hard and not smart. You're, you're watching too much. However, Memory can be very deceitful because there are so many times where I remember a fight one way and it's the opposite. Furthermore, objectively speaking, there are so many times where I, uh, where, where I when I actually do have a strong lean in the fight, I get a completely different opinion after, as I, I, I use the phrase, running through the comb, watching the, watching the fight tape. I'll come out the other end with a different opinion. That's why I'm really re- reserved and reluctant to give analysis early. I even hate having to do staff picks uh, in the beginning of the week for MMA Junkie because I feel like even that, like seeing people's picks or seeing my own picks and having to commit to a pick, again, it's all it's all bias. It's not me calling out commentators like, oh, they're they're biased or this or that. Like, it's a thing that we all have to realize. Uh, MMA gamblers too. You know, MMA gamblers, if this is, I know this is kind of what it's advertised as, and not, not, not to sidetrack, but for example, MMA gamblers have a big trend of betting strikers, not grapplers. And because they like strikers, they like the dazzling, the goo-goo-ga-ga knockouts. We all love it, right? From any intellect, we can appreciate the knockout. They also love unders, right? You know what I'm saying? So like, they also love fading old fighters. So there's everyone, ha- and that's fine. You know, there are some stats to, to bet those things uh, at the appropriate times. But my thing is, no matter whether you're calling a fight, analyzing a fight, betting a fight, it's always good to kind of know your biases. How much weight do you give to comparing two fighters' records versus looking at how their styles match up? Um, styles over records and really styles over most things. That's another thing that's very overlooked is that most people that not only do they, their bias is one thing, but whether they're 
even when they're trying to lean away for their bias, whether they're a stats guy going for other things or they're not stats guy, but they're looking at stats, the thing that's not representative in stats, especially it's it's so misleading because of sample size. That's why you could accuse me of being a, an anti-stats guy or a stats hater. I'm not trying to hate on that. Like we should all know information before we, uh, I think I was listening to one of your previous guests. He had a very good saying on it that I'm, I'd probably brutalize, but it's really important to understand information, right? Um, obvious, there's so much value to that. And I agree with that um, it, it, in theory, but MMA is such a weird base where like stats can actually be misleading. Just like in your previous question, memory can be misleading. Um, so honestly, it's MMA is a very style-based game. Uh, you, you, you could be dangerous being, well, this guy's super old and you know, uh, Izzy's the young up and comer and that's who the promotion wants to win. And he's already got a title and, you know, you'd be real dangerous. It's like, well, and, and, and I got that matchup wrong, for example. So, uh, I'm not beyond it, but it's important to always make sure you, you look at things from a stylistic perspective over age, over stats, over records. And now that the UFC has been mixing up their cages, how much do you think something like cage size affects a fight? I think it's really important. I don't think it's talked about enough. Um, I would like to see some updated stats on it. Uh, I know that it was about, uh, I, 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 I always get confused if it's like 25 percentile up and finish rate and 25 percentile difference in overall radius of real estate or uh, in the 45 percentile. I know one of the numbers is closer to 25 and one is, is closer to 45, but essentially is you're working with less real estate, hence you're getting higher finishing rates. In stylistic perspectives, um, I think it's really important too as well. Um, for example, uh, a guy like uh, Charles Oliveira, I think, does very well. A pressure-based fighter, a grappler. Grapplers and or pressure-based fighters alone, I think, benefit in a smaller cage. There's less to pressure, uh, more forced collisions, hence more opportunities for grappling. Even if you're not as great of a wrestler, your chances are increased by numerical value. Um, so if you look at a guy who's maybe pressure-based and a grappler, those are going to be fighters that are very, I think, um, you know, if you're looking for intangible edges uh, for what you're referencing to, that, that that's kind of the basic, again, every matchup is different, but that's kind of the basic rule of thumb if I were to give one. And you said style above all else. So when you look at the tail of the tape in your research after style, how do you rank things from, let's say, their stance, their reach, their age? What's your priority? Well, there's been a long thing. I think just, you know, bigger is better, you know. Oh, this guy's taller. He's this or more muscular, right? Um, whereas the more skinny guy in Adesanya knocked out Costa. Uh, but the more skinnier guy in Adesanya also, you know, or, you know, you look at like uh, the Neil Magnes of the world. Um, we're seeing that, you know, this thing from like, oh, well, reach, for example, height is also equivalent to reach. That's another reason why it's valued. And there are statistics where if you have six inches in length or more, that's when it becomes relevant. That's why I always kind of scoff at people going, you know, hanging their hat on the argument for why they're siding with, you know, fighter X over fighter Y is because he's got, you know, X amount of reach, especially if it's not even six. Now, even if it is six, you now you have more of an argument, right? However, just like in jujitsu, right? Oh, man, it's good to have those long. Or you can get those triangles. You can get those darses. You can get those weird. There's these arguments in each and I'm not hating on it and I'm not taking away and I'm not calling them false. However. As knowledge and the arms race increases, we're seeing that wrestling is not an end-all be-all because get-up games have gotten better, right? People have learned that, wait, instead of trying to be a guard master in jiu-jitsu, I should work on the MMA meta of getting up. 
And we're seeing it much more neutralized. And the length advantage, if you're a long and lanky guy, yeah, you still have your length and your reach. But what does it make you more susceptible more than more than any other fighter? This little thing that's take, you know, kind of taken over the sport called the calf kick. Um, because you're gonna your your leg is gonna be out there more by definition, by by, you know, by uh what do you call um uh, physics or the word I'm looking for. It's 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 there, it's a reality. You cannot argue that fact. And furthermore, something we see with a lot of these taller fighters, um, like Sean O'Malley, you know, for example, when they these taller guys when they're at lower weight classes, I feel like they fall apart easier. You see weird injuries, right? Sean O'Malley, 135, repeated weird injuries or you know, Montel Jackson just had a good fight, but he gassed the fight before, just like another tall bantamweight, uh, Andre Uhl does. You go up, one of the first shin breaks at 155. Who was it? Corey Hill. Tall, lanky guy, right? And then you, when when those things, they, they, they get less sporadic. But yes, they do happen as you move up in weight. And who's it going to happen to when it moves up in weight? Tall, lanky guys. Hello, Anderson Silva. So I would argue that as the sport grows, especially with leg kicks and and people you know, realizing how powerful they are, I say it's becoming more of a double-edged sword. Then what about something like stance? Like how an orthodox fighter, because most of them are orthodox, how they deal with southpaws or how southpaws deal with other southpaws and also uh, switch stance fighters. How do you rank all that? That is a big deal. Um, before, it was basically breaking down orthodoxes versus southpaws because switch stance was not uh, a very, you know, taken thing, which always kind of, you know, perplexed me a bit, you know? Um, Granted, I came from more of traditional martial arts as well as a little bit of boxing and grew up watching boxing. So I understood it from that sense. You know, southpaws were, you know, recommended against. So it was hard enough for me to go to gym being a southpaw. I had to learn things from both stances, right? So I wanted to switch stances, but that was only because I wanted to fit in. Um, and it was hard to be a southpaw. But as time goes on, you start to see an MMA more than boxing. And someone was asking why this is because there's still a lot more traditional roots in boxing in many ways. Um, one of which is more of, Oh, we got a Southpaw in the room. Like you're going to hear more of that in the boxing class, much less, especially if you go to an actual boxing gym, whereas MMA, it's much more, you know, uh, switch stance oriented. So extreme couture partnered a, a few years back, more than a few years, probably like 2014 ish, 2015 ish with Dwayne Ludwig and all the guys, go and regularly train and get certified under him. So you see a lot of switch stance more coming out of those fighters. Um, Factory X Muay Thai, you got guys like Chris Gutierrez, right? And now we're seeing more switch stance fighters to where even if they're, you know, facing the Southpaw and Chris Gutierrez primarily fights from Orthodox, we saw him. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to switch to Andre Wool's Southpaw stance and attack him here. So before I could be like, well, an Orthodox guy's facing a Southpaw guy. I'm not going to be as confident that they're confident in their inside leg kick. Hence, I'm not going to be as confident in the leg kicks, right? A little bit more easier math. Whereas, ooh, we got a southpaw versus southpaw matchup. The leg kicks could be more potent, which perhaps we all should have given more credit for Dustin Poirier, Conor McGregor. But now in this era where you see all these different gyms, all these different styles, different weight switching stances, it becomes much harder to predict um, the stance game because I believe the stance game is mainly predicated or your main point of focus as an analyst or even as a better, you should be looking at leg kicks. So now you sprinkle in calf kicks to the, that equation and it's a very volatile intangible in fights these days. It seemed for a couple of years, if you were switch stancing, you just had an automatic advantage, right? Like people couldn't figure you out. But nowadays it seems like we're seeing more and more where 
switch dancers are getting caught while switching stances. We saw that recently in the past UFC, somebody getting knocked out while switching stances. You see that with Alexander Hernandez, where it seems like everybody has figured out you attack him while he's switching around, right? It seems like MMA has adjusted where that neo footwork, what they used to call it back in the day, isn't what it used to be. Absolutely. And when they were calling it neo footwork, I think it was, you know, a a kind of an excuse because we didn't know what the hell was going on. Um, you know, uh, objectively on even people like myself was kind of having trouble understanding. However, in my defense, I don't feel like half these fighters knew what they were doing. Hence <laughs> why they're still getting caught. Right. Yeah. Because, and I always call it out like, cause around 2011, when you start kind of seeing an uptick in these things, right. Uh, similar to the martial arts goes through its own weird thing where we're finally starting to accept leg locks, right. A little more for the grappling and with the striking, we're finally starting to see more switch stance, right. About 2012, I should say, even the earliest and 2013, 2014, it really picks up. Right. Um, but outside of TJ Dillashaw and like that 2013, 2014, and even still till today with the really bad, really bad switch dancers, it was all bullshit. They were just throwing body kicks to the liver. And as much as I appreciate a body kick to the liver, um, you know, shout out to, to a, a former kickboxing coach, Tim Lane, who said, who would always, you know, kind of do the trick question. What's the most powerful kick? Everyone's like, Edson Barbosa spinning heel kick. And then someone would be smart, kick to the balls, right? And the right answer was the liver kick, because it doesn't matter how strong you are, you get hit in the, anyone who's taking a liver shot, much less a punch, uh, uh, or much less a kick, you you guys know. And um, so I'm not hating on that, but that was the obvious thing. You're like, oh, he's switching the southpaw, I wonder what he's going to throw. And it was so dang obvious. And maybe they went for a head kick the next time they switched. Like That was the emphasis of the, of the layers and trickery, whereas now, we're seeing guys move and show stuff, you know, from champs like Volkanovsky to these younger guys like Adrian Yanez, who even if they're not switching stance so much, everything has a purpose and they're moving their head with everything, whether it's a strike or even their feints they're moving their head with. Um, so we're, we're seeing much more education these days. Something even casual fans have started to pick up on has been output. So how important is output when you're looking at two fighters? Output's incredibly important. Um, it's, it's definitely a winner. Uh, is, you know, you see it in like Max Holloway fights, obviously, if you can find ways to put output, you need certain things like striking skills, uh, defense, or if you lack certain things defensively, you better have a good chin like Max. Um, in, and not to generalize, but in female fights, I feel like output is even more important. Uh, output is a very crucial example. If you want to do, as I say, the lazy man breakdown, you go to the UFC.com stats for those really skewed sample sizes of strikes outputs for a minute, those are actually probably won't necessarily hurt you if you're breaking down the female fights. And again, this isn't picking on ladies. It's just for the fact of they, a, they fit the men trope of lighter cl weight classes where you're not going to get as much stoppage. Although men's bantam weight will have something to tell you different. Uh, but generally in lighter weight classes, you won't get as many stoppages. So output by default, right. It's probably going to win you a lot of those fights. Uh, and B, if, um, whether you want to, you know, look at things like you uh, like genetics or whatever as your explanation, which I'm not going to because I'm not an expert, uh, or you want to look at things like the fact that you know, and this isn't against you know ladies or women, but just the fact that WMMA is is still you know developing as far as like where they are in the in the in the, in the space time continuum, if they will, and that's again that's not their fault. They got a, a later start, uh, not as much opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth, right? 
I'm not questioning those things, but because of those things, yeah, you're going to find not as many counter strikers that can make you pay for volume, like a Valentina Shevchenko, who, you know, is at the top of the food chain, sans Amanda Nunes for a reason. There's not a lot of, there's, you know, a, a lot of the women still, and it's um, amazing stories. And I'm glad that promotions make time to tell these stories. But what is a lot of the common thread is still, you know, I, I wanted to get in shape after college or after having a kid or like these things are not uncommon stories for the top level athletes. And that's not to diminish or pick or any way. But when you look at it, like in other sports, it's more of the, again, back to the Valentina Shevchenko's are these people who are not so coincidentally atop the food chain. These are young girls who grew up doing it. Right. And not all, not all girls had that opportunity or encouragement. We're still seeing that curve. Um, be rightfully evened out, but but that's kind of where it's at. So volume is a real kingpin in those divisions. Less so in men's divisions. You've got heavier weights. More things can happen as you get up to heavyweight. Even though, again, I'll throw the same criticism to the men there. Right? Less less skill at heavyweight. This is not a this is not a men or women thing. This is just objectively speaking for the weight class. So, uh, but yeah, volume is still very important. So in general, volume is important. But then if you happen to see that they're matched up against a counter-striker, then it gets harder to predict. Sure. Or how about maybe not a good counter-striker, but a wrestler? Or more specifically, you want to look, okay, well, is this a wrestler who goes to his wrestling? A, if he is, what kind? Is he a clench wrestler? If he is, that's going to be dangerous closing on a volume guy. That's a lot of punches to get through. However, if they've got a good reactive shot, a good reactive shot off the back foot, well, now they're more dangerous than any counterpuncher, right? Because they t- they're completely taking the volume out of the equation if they can get that person on their back. So, and like you said, with the stance switching, stance switching is going to open you up to more counters, and so is volume. So, when you're using them in conjunction, again, that's why not everybody can max Holloway. Max Holloway might make it look easy, especially against certain opponents, but that's so hard to do to keep up both volume, much less stance switching or shifting attacks without being countered. Yeah, I remember the old book Fightnomics by uh, Reed Kuhn. In there, it was like Nick Diaz or the Diaz brothers style was like the best style to bet on because they had such high what he called pace. But to your point, yeah, they did well unless they met a wrestler. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That pace is what got them taken down over and over. So whenever they got to the top of the food chain and had to go against wrestlers, if you kept betting on them, you ended up losing a lot as well. Absolutely. And uh, sometimes they would get knocked down too. And even though they had great chins, right? Because you are throwing a lot, you get caught out of position. Whereas fighters that are really good about, you know, maintaining their position, sell them out of position, Shevchenko to abuse that, but also Aldo, um, they are more powerful. It's not a coincidence that they are A, counter strikers, but B, more powerful than their contemporaries. Because again, like Diaz or like Max, for as good as they are, they're not necessarily known as one-shot power KO artists, are they? Yet they're outperforming in the pace. Because like everything in life, there is no biological free lunch, people. Everything you see has a trade-off. For people who want to watch a fight like an analyst, tell us about what you do. Uh, I think more toward your earlier line of question, uh, both style, obviously, which reigns supreme, um, but stance. And I go about that, and I always say a forensic breakdown uh, approach so um one of the things i always wanted to do believe it or not was not to be a cop so much but a detective and really figure out crime scenes and break things like down like that i always found that very interesting uh um i want to do that uh, even for like uh 
FBI. Like I wrote like this, like 500 word report when I was like in the fourth grade and unsolicited by the teacher, like was just obsessed with like wanting to, to, to do that stuff. So I'll borrow a term, but, um, it's more of the forensic science as far as breaking down those things. So again, for me, I prioritize by style of fighter. So let's just say we look at two fighters. I'm not even caring about what the odds are. I'm not caring about who's the champ. I'm not caring uh, what the reach is so much. Um, I want to look at these fighter styles. Now, if one of them is a southpaw, this makes it very easy for me because immediately I'm going to look at the orthodox fighter. I'm going to go scan their record and I'm going to look for their fights against southpaws and see how they do. Um, and as I, that's going to be for me to plot my course. Okay. So kind of like a pilot you want to, or, or you're on a ship, you want to plot your course, uh, especially with the kind of, like I hinted my little OCD there with what I have to do with today. Ideally, you want to watch everything from beginning to the, to the end, because even if it's not relevant, what you're going to learn is you're going to learn how fighters come back from adversities. Um, you're going to learn how fighters, how fast they generally progress from fight to fight. You're going to get a better feel for that. You're going to get a better feel for their consistency from their attitude to their performance. I mean, these are really hardcore things to be looking into. Granted, not everybody should need to or will want to do that. But these are when people say, what's the benefit of doing looking through all that needless stuff? Well, it's not all necessarily needless because there's a, there's a really irreplaceable flow. You know, you get to know these people. And, um, you know, I'm not the biggest John Jones fan, but one thing I really, I don't know if he still does this today, but I think you could attribute a lot of his successes for all the lack of training that he was accused of and was probably true, let's be honest, I really appreciated the almost serial killer mode that he would get into, you know? Like, he would, like, get blue pieces of tape mark because um, blue painter's tape doesn't rip off the paint in your house, and he would always have the reach of every fighter's around, around every corner. So even if he was going about to do his day, he was processing their reach, and that was kind of his um hierarchy if you will and that sounds very serial killer like but now transferring back to your question and analyzing through tape um that's kind of a similar process if you have the time however i don't so i'll go back and look at key fights so if it's a southpaw against southpaws and obviously i'm going to go in chronological order right um and see if there's any common threads you know some of them are obvious the records are going to tell you like wait a minute this guy always loses when there's a southpaw this is definitely worth looking into um but as we saw with last weekend's not the timestamp, but Kevin Holland six and zero against Southpaws did not matter when he ran into Derek Brunson. He wrestled him right. Uh, so you want to look for those those things there. Um, is he facing a leg kicker? Okay, well, who is the best leg kicking threat Fighter X has faced before this? I'm going to go back and do some forensic duties and see how they deal with kickers in general. Right. I'm going to collect that information. Same with wrestlers. Maybe there's not it's orthodox versus orthodox, but one fighter is not just a better wrestler on paper from his credentials, but he clearly uses the wrestling to win his fights. Okay, well, I know who I'm watching first. I'm watching his opponent, and I'm not just watching his opponent. I'm watching his, every fight his opponent has had, fighter X has had against a wrestler. So I know what his chances are stack up to fighter Y. Now, once I do this uh, reconnaissance, this forensic reconnaissance, if you will, um, I'm so much of a nut that I, I, I would, I'll, try, I'll try to avoid the odds, but you, you can't, so I'll, um, I'll block them off. But what I will do is I'll go back to the odds or I'll rediscover the odds after I've come through with my analysis and I'll see, does this match? And that's kind of a good barometer um, as far as betting value goes. It definitely makes me curious about my picks a lot of the times. If my analysis comes up and I'm on this 
I'm on this underdog where I'm like, how the heck did I end up here? And everybody's over here. Well, okay, let's let's trot this out and get smashed by the public for it and hope I'm right. You know, well, you know, we'll see. It's a volatile sport, but that's kind of my process. You know, I try not to read other people's work. I will read my work to uh to one of you and to again kind of round back to one of your previous questions. Um, a lot of these fighters I've written up, like Cowboy Cerrone, I've written 20 freaking breakdowns or so at this point. You know what I'm saying? I, I know him very well, um, but at the same time, if there is literature out there, I will go back and reread it because again. I'll forget certain things, you know, sometimes there'll be like cool words that I'm like, why don't I use that in my writing style? I, I, you know, and it'll help me there. Like it'll help me in many ways. It, so I, I yeah, I, I, that, that long answers here, but that, that's my, that's my kind of forensic process, if you will. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining team Southpaw on Patreon by becoming a member You'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Do you think you can learn anything from watching training footage? Or again, do you think that can also be misleading? It could be very misleading. Um, you know, sometimes you could use it to confirm things like Connor versus Nate one. Um, I said the uppercut was going to be something to watch out for. And that seemed really weird because it was a last minute tallest opponent right? You're like, what? Uppercut? Tall opponent? How does that work? Um, and if you look, Connor hit him with a decent amount, but mainly to prove my point through a lot of uppercuts because that shot becomes more open on a same stance matchup. And we would see Connor kind of celebrate that. Granted, against shorter reach fighters like the Marcus Brimages of the world. And in that buildup, um, I'm not much for a pad watcher, but I was watching what he was doing with Owen Roddy and there was a ton of uppercuts in there. Um, so in that case, my pre- my own analysis from what I, what told me to little stuff that I honestly don't really don't, I don't look much at pad work to be honest fight week. That was just an example where I did. Cause it was a confirmation bias, if you will, you know, to what we saw in the fight. Now, obviously the result of the fight he lost, but we're talking about as far as the analysis and if things like pad work matter, right. Um, in other instances, you know, I remember looking at, I'll, I'll go to fighters, Instagrams as part of my study, just to see what they're doing, who they're training with, um, you don't always have to post your diet. It's super annoying, but I really love when fighters do it because if you're an outsider, I want to know that if it's, it tells me a lot if you're checking off the, the boxes of your diet. However, sometimes you'll be on guys like Mike Perry's Instagram and you'll stumble across him just looking god awful in a heavy bag. And you're like, wait a minute, that's like your thing, buddy. <laughs> and sure enough, he gets outstruck by Mickey Gall um, right after this. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes things are... You know, it, that, that that stuff can be very telling. I'm definitely not going to write it off. Do I openly look for it? Do I put a lot of weight into it? No, it's in fight. You know, you can train with whoever you want. You can look great on the pads, but it's in fight. And some of my favorite fighters, I'm a big Mike Pyle fan, right? But what was Mike Pyle's criticism or the stereotype is that he would put it on these fighters like Matt Brown when Matt Brown rolled in an extreme couture after tough, but Matt Brown was the dude that iced his uh, winning streak on Fox. 
real fast, you know, on, on game night. So you got to be careful about that. The one thing you can learn from social media or the best thing you can learn from social media is who they're training with. Because sometimes you look at Wikipedia or something and it's outdated and you have to confirm with Instagram to see what team are they with or who are they training with now? And you can see who they're training with. So with that said, then does knowing who they train with or if they switch training camps or are temporarily training with a certain team or a certain coach? Does that affect your analysis at all? Like, let's say fighter A went to Sanford or fighter B went to factory X. I'm glad you mentioned Sanford because, yeah, that I, I do weigh it and I should weigh it a lot more heavier if I'm being honest, because, uh, again, to reference a, a match, um, Kevin Holland and Derek Brunson, um, I'm usually always like on the veteran guy. The grappler is my bias. And this was one of the weird ones where I was on the side of the Hot, more hyped guy, the younger guy, the fighter whose main path was a knockout. I'm usually betting against those guys and picking against those guys. Derek Brunson um, recently refined his style to where he was fighting much more smarter after going to Sanford MMA. And furthermore, because I have to put you know this information and put it out correctly, because you'll hear from everybody on social media when it's not. I can't go off of you know SureDog and Tapology, which, like you said, they're always not it, uh, up to date. Even those sites. Um, so I have to do my due diligence through these methods. And I saw that Derek Brunson not only training at Sanford again, but training with uh, the last person to beat Kevin Holland, who also is a grappler, and Brandon Allen. And I'm like, well, that's probably, you know, we probably shouldn't have been surprised that Derek Brunson came out and wrestled for five rounds, right? Um, so it's to your point, yeah, it is very important to see who they're training with. But to that note, um, one time I can say where it's often overcorrected and where you should be careful about overcorrecting it is when it is the fighter's first camp where they're making these changes even if it does end up being a long-term positive choice that reaps dividends those dividends aren't often seen in that first fight whether it is a fail or a perfect fit or everything in between a common thread when you look at each individual case is that that first fight out of that camp it's it's always an adjusting period as i call it it's an adjusting period you know so a lot of times even if you like the fighter and then you like their move even more I will still often, that'll scare me away from the bet, even if I still pick them because uh, it's more of a wait and see spot. You know, I want to wait, you know, wait and see. And those are good wait and see spots when a fighter is fighting for their first time with a new team. Have you found that you need to have actually trained to be a good predictor of fight outcomes? Or have you seen people who have never trained be excellent predictors? That is something that um, I've, I've, you know, I prided myself because, I, like I said, there wasn't much in the time where, I, you know, not that I was doing it that long ago, but when I started doing this, there wasn't a lot of voices from the martial arts side. Um, that's why I got into it, and I will maybe credit my little, if any, success to that, I guess. Um, however, uh, I never had the attitude that it made me better than anybody. Um, I never had the attitude, um, you know, uh, to not just with that, with anything, like if, if you tell me what you want to do. It could sound crazy. I'm going to be the guy be like, that's awesome, man. Even though, you know, as long as it's not hurting anybody, of course, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to support you. Um, so I've never been a hater in that sense. However, I do felt like it gave me, you know, a crazy amount of value for obvious reasons. Um, uh, a crazy amount of respect and empathy that is very much probably the most thing lacking with the betting analysis side, because there's a lot of, it's like that learned behavior, right? It's that psychology, like, oh, you got to, you know, that's why I, 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 I love hip hop, but I never was a fan of the 50 cents 
or, you know, um, I love boxing. I love even defensive boxing, but I, I didn't like Floyd's attitude. Granted, cause I also saw it in person as a Las Vegas local and security guard. At least Dana White can say that he was probably the best tipper at every job I had. Whereas, uh, Floyd was always the worst tipper and even didn't take care of his own bodyguards, which I would talk to them firsthand, neither here nor there, but it's because it was just this attitude that it put out, uh, and you would see it mimicked and it's this whole, I got success. I got, and you see, and I'm bringing that up not to pick on these people, but it actually relates a lot to the MMA gambling kind of, um, attitude. Um, and I feel like maybe people in that space would, would do more to train, but to help to selfishly help their own analysis, if anything. But I think a byproduct is, is you would get some empathy, you know, um, you know, I, I feel like I already have a lot just from my, my upbringing, uh, with, with a lot of things and experiences with like, you know, with bullying, for example, that I think that makes one of the, po- not that I'm saying everybody should go get bullied, but like, you know, one of the positive byproducts is it makes me very, um, empathetic, you know, and you could certainly throw that lobby, uh, the criticism toward journalism or other analysts too. And I agree there are benefits that a lot of them would get. However, um, even though I never had the attitude that you need martial arts, it, I've always believed that there's plenty of good people that can break it down. I've seen so many more um, that have very limited experience. Maybe they've taken some classes or whatever, but like, man, they do they they do such a better job than me. Depending on what the subject is, depending on what the medium is, you know, uh, writing or other things. Like, not that I think I'm great or anything, but like, just to put for example, like someone who's done, you know, in in the media space who has martial arts experience, just for example, saying this that. Yeah, man, I see a lot of people that work that you can learn from, I have learned from, um, and that deserves respect. And it comes from a respectful place. So long answer, but I'm not a person who, I'm prideful of my experience, but I don't believe that it's uh, end-all be-all. Yeah, from my experience, and maybe you can echo this, but having been around a lot of pro fighters, I've found pro fighters are some of the worst at predicting fights. Oh, yeah. I try to analyze this. And I was like, why are they so bad at it when they do it? And I realized because their biases, they always pick the fighter who they think deserves to win. Mm -hmm. They don't actually analyze it. I don't think they can analyze it. They just look at who's working harder, who is slacking off. Like they don't want to pick, let's say, John Jones. I don't know if that's the example because at this point, everybody, everybody knows how good he is. But that type of person where they don't know if they're training hard enough or don't want it enough, they always pick against them. And it's like, it's like a coin flip. It doesn't care yeah. what you believe about deserve. It's just going to land the way it's going to land. And, and I think that bias is what has made them so bad at it. That's exactly why I, as much as we need judging reform, I hate the suggestion when people say we need more fighters as judges. I'm like, no, it's, they'll be worse actually, folks. <laughs> it sounds crazy because we're, we're crapping on these people and we're using stereotypes. So this person's never tra-. And so it would seem like that the fighter would be the easy answer. But yeah, for exactly why you said the bias is way too strong. And yeah, there's just a lot of personal stuff. And I have that inner voice too, man. Uh, when I pick John Jones, I usually begrudgingly pick him. Um, and maybe that's why I picked a Kevin Holland over a guy who I thought and maybe like more like a Derek Brunson because. And it's another thing that is something that recognizing your own bias is overcorrecting the steering wheel. Um, it's something we all do. It's what we all do, especially when our bias burns us, right? Um, refs do it all the time. If a ref stops something early, I guarantee you they're probably going to stop something late. If they have one other mess up, it's going to be a late stoppage, right? If they have a late stoppage in the early in the night, if they have any more mistakes that night, Sam, it's going to be an early stoppage, right? If we see judges you know, give Yannick Kunitskaya, 
for literally landing two elbows and punching while having her back taken the whole time. Um, and they don't give where well, they overemphasize, they overcorrected the steering wheel because they've been ignoring the the rules reform for freaking two years now. Now what we're seeing him do in Nevada is overcorrect the steering wheel to damage, which I'm all for damage, but we're seeing that overcorrected too, right? And then, and these are things again. It's hard to, it's almost impossible to predict. But these are intangibles you have to take in mind if you're putting your money on these fights. Where, what do we see in the next one? Right, we're seeing like ten eights being given to like Jan Blachowicz and Izzy in round eight. Like, you know, Ketlin Vieira must have been looking at like, what the heck? He, <laughs> how did he get a ten eight for that? And I can't even get around for going getting, you know, literally four times more the passes and literally four times more the submission attempts. But we're seeing that overcorrecting of the steering wheel where like you just, you know, like we used to laugh when the guys were stuck in submissions and they didn't know anything to do but to punch back. Like that was like grounds to be laughed at. Now we're like, well, I don't know. It's a close round because that person punched him a couple times when they were stuck in the leg lock and did not know how to get out of some basic 50-50 positions. But now all of a sudden, I think they should have won the round. And it's it's really weird. I'm, I'm probably got sidetracked from your original question there. Apologies. <laughs> How much do you take into account frequency of schedule or accumulated damage? So what I mean is the opposite of ring rust, where you're like, oh, man, this is like the fourth time they're fighting this year or fifth time. Or you're like, this fighter's been at a lot of wars. So even though they've had time off, how much do you take into account how much damage they've already accumulated or that they fought too many times and maybe are a little burnt out? Another great and relevant question. I think it's important. However, like the camp thing, this is a very thing that can be very easily overcorrected on. Um, and especially even by people that are fellow analysts and analysts that I especially respect. Um, it's a real common fault of many of us where I don't know if it's, again, back to my original thing, overcorrecting the steering wheel. This is how it plays out, right? We had been burned so much. Maybe it's because of our bias. Maybe because it was, maybe it was honest analysis that got us to legitimately pick these fighters. Either way, you get burned, you get jaded, and then you get like the Kevin Holland and Brunson matchup. And you're like, you know what? This seems like the matchup where despite everything on paper, this is MMA and this guy's probably just going to win anyways. And occasionally um, you can make that you can make that mistake. Well, the same thing with overcorrecting information as far as attributive damage for your question, right? Whereas we've got Stipe uh, and Nagano rematch coming up. And since then, Stipe has only fought DC three times. And in the first DC fight, he got knocked out and he won the other two. And the narrative, which probably only got strengthened since after the first DC fight was that Ngannou weakened his chin. And that is one of the more legitimate cases, if you want to point to that theory, which is why I'm using it. However, even with that case, who are we? Are we doctors? No. <laughs> and even the best doctors in the world, what is the most unknown part of the, the human body and our sciences still? The brain. Um, what can we not tell until uh, gauge damage until largely after we're dead and postmortem? The brain. Um, so it, I feel really skeptical hanging my hat on those things, right? And whether it's better is betting against it, like there's no way this guy can take more damage, right? Um, or even us analysts, because we're trying to overcorrect the steering wheel, maybe because we're like, we love Max Holloway so much, and so many of us just buried him um, in the rematch with Volkanovsky, and he lost, right? But it was, he did a whole lot better than even Max Holloway supporters were thinking, right? Uh, and then even then, we're like, oh, still, 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 Max is done, too much damage. Cater's one of the heavier hitting featherweights. Cater... You know, and, and 
people that pay, I, I didn't pick Cater, but even me, I was kind of skeptical of my Max pick. And people that I respected that were picking Cater, it was because Max is just look at, look at, they would, and they would bring, again, this is why stats are dangerous in MMA. They bring the numbers to their argument. Nothing wrong with that. And sure, those numbers were like, wow, we're in the hundreds of significant strikes absorbed in just a few years' time. And this is a guy who spends his whole career going to war. Maybe, maybe it is Miles and not age because Max is young, right? That would be the obvious counterpoint. What does he do? He goes out there and he puts on a young man's performance. So it's one of these things where it is, it's, I'm not going to deny its validity. It is something that you should look at as a part of your forensic routine. I won't deny that from you. However, I will warn anybody putting a lot of weight into that because all of Stipe's fights with DC since have been a year apart. And regardless of what happens with his rematch in Nganu, there's going to be a year between that. So you know what that means? It throws all that science junk right out the window. You know what I'm saying? Stipe can go in there and he can get knocked out by Nganu. And it kind of puts that whole Nganu sample size to trash because I believe there was a bigger, longer layoff. Um, there was a shorter time between fights between his first fight where he went f- five rounds with the beast of a man and he didn't get knocked out then. It's just, it, it's weird, man. Sometimes fighters get knocked out in the gym. That's what happens, you know? Forrest Griffin got knocked out a bunch of times. My striking coach at the time, Jory Varner, told me this. Um, and, you know, he, he fought uh, before he fought Anderson Silva and not taking away from Anderson's performance, but there was a reason why he was so flustered and, and couldn't get his cognition right and was knocked down by a jab and couldn't was so frustrated he ran out of the damn octagon the guy got dropped a bunch of times in sparring but you know again a different time on a related note then something i've been thinking a lot about isn't necessarily the chin but the eye meaning how many eye pokes has a fighter taken i think about that because there was a fighter i don't want to name names because they're still fighting but i got inside information that the dude can barely see and somehow they're passing the test and fighting in the UFC. So they were a favorite going into a fight, and I knew they were going to lose because they could barely see. Knowing that, if you watch the fight, you could see like this is a person with impaired vision trying to fight. They couldn't see the punches coming. So with that said, then, have you been thinking about like eye damage? Like Stipe is somebody who I think has to wear now corrective glasses because of eye damage. Do you think about that? Like, what's their vision like? That's a really good point, man. Um... No, I haven't thought about that, to be honest, unless it's something relevant, like where, you know, they suffered like a steep A with this stuff or an eye poke, uh, or even like Cormier's, if you were to fight again after that last one, that was really bad. Um, and again, with eye poking and fouling while you're ahead, seeming to be the new M- MMA meta, um, something we should, we, should, we should focus on a bit more. Uh, in fact, that might be a more easier metric than head kicks. And to bring back to, you know, talking about new weapons with the leg kicks, um, even those have no biological free lunch. You hear about Jim Miller, one of the earliest guys using calf kicks, even on the inside. If you go look at the beginning of his UFC 155 fight with Joe Lozon, the first of their uh, memorable duel off, right? Um, he talks about not being able to um, use parts of his his shin and his calf for long periods of time because of that, or, or throw those kicks. And uh and he, him and Dustin Poirier, when they later fought, shared a conversation because Jim started attacking uh, Dustin Poirier, who came in oddly enough with the game plan to attack Jim's shins. And of course, Dustin suffered some really nasty, almost compartment syndrome, where like he was just. We, I remember interviewing after the fight, saying that he thought about quitting 
I mean, it was in so much pain uh, before he was able to even be allowed to fly home. But that taught him the importance of it, which he went and then used against Connor. So again, you know, just in that little 155 lineage dating back to 155, you see guys not just learning the lessons off of effectiveness, but through their own admission. And if you look at their fights, it's true. They, they threw it a lot. There's pockets of fights after those fights where they didn't throw those kicks very, very often at all. Um, Poirier included. Um, it's because it took such a damage to either absorb and or throw them, right? And I never I never accounted or thought thought twice of that. But you're hearing it A from the horse's mouth and B, the evidence matches it when you go back to watch it. So back to your question about the eye, that is very relevant because again, like I said earlier, there's no biological free lunches in this game. Everything's got a cost. That was always the suspicion about Jose Aldo is that he stopped throwing the kicks as much because he must have hurt his legs from kicking too much. Yeah, and then now all of a sudden he's bringing it back late in his career, which probably strengthens that that previous theory even more. But he doesn't kick it nearly as hard as he used to. Do you notice that it's more like this karate tap now? Yeah, because he's going a lot of lead leg too, I, I think. Um, yeah. Or more lead leg, I should say, than before. Or before it was mainly just power, rear. So then talk to us about MMA striking because a lot of fights don't end up in finishes. Sometimes there's no takedowns involved. What are the things fighters are doing now then when I'm looking at a fighter to bet that judges like? Judges just honestly like damage. And that's the tough part where, that you know, um, one of my things is where I always fall victim to, especially in this day and age, is, and shout out to another analyst who I, I, I respect a lot, Connor Rebush and he coined this athleticism. He made like articles about this, like athleticism is cheating, right? Like, like almost like, you know, because I'm very guilty. And so is, so is Connor of picking the more technical fighter, right? Like, oh, this guy puts out more volume, which judges like and scores fights, right? But he's also real technical about how he does it. Um, and this fight hits the floor, even though we're talking about striking, he's got the advantage there. He's the more well-rounded guy. He's got a lot of experience. He stays calm. And, and you, all of these little things that, you know, I or you could nerd out on. But the truth is, they could be doing all those things. Like, um, I feel like Bobby Green, Tiago Moises. And I know Bobby Green's a dangerous example because he's a very um, polarizing style. I'm a defender of Bobby Green's style because I'm a defender of counters. And not getting triggered by vocal things. Um, again, people are swayed by commentary. Just as they're swayed by someone talking crap, they're like, oh, this guy's cocky. And all of a sudden, they don't like that fighter, right? Um, which is also why those fighters will get scorecards, close scorecards, not so coincidentally, are often scored against them, right? But if you look at the action, he's being much more technical. He's landing and outstriking, I believe, Moises in every round. But Moises... Um, who turned a corner after that fight, by the way, he's doing great. No hate on him. But if you look, he just throws some really strong power shots. And a lot of them didn't even hit, right? But they block and the commentary goes, oh, and the crowd would go, oh, because they don't know any better. And or even if they do, they don't have a great view. And it's kind of that sheep reaction mentality, right? But even though the crowd aren't there to influence the judges, the judges can still hear the commentary you know, which is very dangerous. Like I remember Marlon Vera versus, versus uh, Song Yadong and Vera hurts him with a body shot and Bisping who trains with Marlon Vera and is really good friends with Marlon Vera's coach goes, he's hurt. He hurt Yadong. And I'm like, Hey, that's really bad because you're biased uh, to say that. But B, regardless of your bias, uh, the fact that you're cheering for your guy, you're, you're blatantly influencing the judges and in what was one of the most record. And I'm not, I like Bisping by the way. 
think he does a great job on commentary. It's just a great example that you know it, it influences it you know it influences what the judges was were, were looking for. And in re- recently rewatching that round, I actually felt it was less controversial to score it um, for Yadong because even if he was hurt, he came back and actually outstruck and landed harder and more shots from that point to the close of the round that he was supposedly hurt. That everybody remind latches on because to your previous point. Um, commentary is very strong, but to answer you, round it back to your question, the reason why I react to moments like that is because, as we see on scorecards, that judges are, as I said previously, overcorrecting. Again, I agree, we should be prioritizing damage, but they're overcorrecting to it, that these little damaging moments, even if they're not damaging moments, they just have to be perceived damaging moments, can completely sway a scorecard, which is tough, you know? I- I'm I'm usually not for um, like for example, round four, Yoel Romero versus uh, Robert Whitaker two. Um, Robert Whitaker comes back from a hellacious round three, but he really, Yoel Romero like throws like literally four or five strikes that whole round. Uh, you, uh, Robert Whitaker outworks him the whole round, but at the very end of the round, Romero rocks Whitaker. He doesn't drop him, but he rocks him. Now I feel like he was more rocked than Bisping proclaiming. Vera hurt and rocked Yadong, for example. I actually did feel that Whitaker was rocked. That being said, I still gave him the round because it's very subjective. We didn't get to see how it played out, and it was ultimately only one strike in one second over a literally a whole four minutes and fifty seconds of otherwise, you know, dominant from from Whitaker. Uh, whereas Manel Cape in Matthias Nicolau was a recently contested scorecard. I picked and I bet on Nicolau. That being said, I scored that last round for Cape, despite my bias, because I felt like he didn't do just one shot of damage. I felt like he did sustained amount of damage and that even though Nicolau, like Whitaker, output more work, um, he wasn't getting any respect for it. And the judges, even though some one disagreed, the majority of the judges agreed. So a long way to answer your question, but it's really dangerous to me to, you know, you know, spot on about volume and feints. And all these things are fantastic and they're true. But with the way judging is, you know, you could just be a dumb athlete and just swing back hard and win the win the damn round nowadays. So it's real tough. I think Greg Jackson, right, uh, coach of Jackson Wink, one of the things he does is to yell out loud when one of his fighters does really well, right? Like sure. hit something, they go, whoa, or a, or you heard him, like with the intent to actually manipulate the judges. The narrative. Yeah. So ergo, he's not directly saying it, but. His fighters have been, especially John Jones, has been in really close decisions and kind of saying that's how we win those close decisions by kind of putting these, you know, almost hypnotic suggestions out into the air and judges fall for it. Or maybe they just put it out in the air and the commentators say it louder or Joe Rogan is screaming. And then through a game of telephone, that (laughs) starts affecting the judges. Beautifully put. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I know Cornerman that will admit admit that too, you know, Um you look at Dan Ige and Edson Barbosa, everyone gets so upset about that decision. And I'm I'm really good friends with the corner man, Eric Nixon, who's a fantastic corner man, who has shown his worth as a corner man more than others. That being said, he's not going to lie. He's like, yeah, we got to be cheerleaders from there. You don't know what the judges are hearing and what they aren't. And those close decisions like that, it could come down to a, the narrative that what they're putting out, you know, him saying that, you know, you know, they had that body shot didn't hurt you. Yeah, you want to be there. Good. Work for that single when Edson Barbosa clearly hurt him to the body. 
you know um so you know th- these things are are absolutely you know true and and it works on the fans there are still really smart people who will get mad at you for saying that you scored the first fight for Jones versus Gus but saying that it's way closer than people give it credit for i mean a lot of that is just people fanboying for you know one of the few undefeated fighters because a lot of people it's so safe to strap your ego to that hence why sports have bandwagon fans However, a lot of it's just trickery through that game of telephone that is still playing tricks almost 10 years later on people to where <laughs> they will ardently defend, like, no one ever came close to beating Judd Jones, you know, and they get so up in their feelings about it. It's funny. Yeah, I think every fighter is told to raise their hands as soon as the fight is over, especially in the last round when it goes to decision. Oh, it's huge. Because you're taught that when you put on this posture that you won, you might be able to sway the judges for the last round. I remember even before MMA, I learned this from like, you know, smoker, boxing, and Muay Thai days. <laughs> yeah. The people who are more experienced than you, as soon as the fight is over, they run in. It's like, raise your hands up, raise your hands up. Let the judges see you. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's why uh, every practice, Extreme Couture, has ended with sparring. And if it was really hard sparring, it would end there. Otherwise, they would just punish us with conditioning to make sure we were as dead tired as we could be. And the practice wasn't an over until you heard, all right, hands up, run around for your victory lap. You just won. Because they wanted to instill that into you, no matter how freaking tired you were. You know, when you were ready to check out, that no, it's not time. The bell doesn't mean you're done. The bell means raise your hands and take your victory lap. And that's, it's so important. I've seen so many fights won and lost off of body language. You know, it's body language because judges, judges are human beings, you know, just like the the judges going against crap talk. Remember, everyone got upset. Oh, Gadelia won against Joanna. That's why she was going to win the rematch. That was the rematch going in, right? Um, and if you look, there actually was legitimate thing for it's one one and Gedalia legitimately make even under older rules, much less especially newer rules, should have won that. But what happened at the end of that third round? Gedalia throws a really bad late strike that even Gedalia goes like immediately. You see her face go from anger to go, oh my god, I just effed up. Oh my goodness. So you're telling me that it's a close round. That any judge with a conscience, even if they don't have a great human moral conscience, they're just going to be like, oh, screw that fighter. I'm going the other way. And I'm still sticking to that's why my theory, why Joanna won that fight. It's body language. It's what you do. Those judges are human beings. You just mentioned conditioning. So when looking at fighters, how much do you weigh a fighter's stamina going into a fight? Or do you think today everybody's coming in in shape and stamina isn't what it used to be like? I don't know, back in Frank Shamrock, Tito Ortiz days. Stamina is huge. It's still huge. You know, um, I used to be one of those people, especially because, you know, it's just anti, you know, as you could tell, you know, my bias is, you know, a bit, you know, anti-athlete, which is not true. I love athletes. Obviously, it's what I cover. Um, but, you know, in those days where it was like Diego Sanchez, just, you know, mauling dudes, and he had Goldberg going, cardio is the number one weapon in MMA. I would almost like shake my fist. Like, Shut up, Goldie. You don't talking about it's technique you know and like you know like you know like obviously very immature that voice there i'm giving you guys but but there was a point to that right like it, it is super important um and i would say not just for picking a winner but for betting you know even if i'm gonna pick a guy because the analysis on every other check mark marks off that you know what he's going against a guy who stylistically is going to give him the fight that he wants and also is not very durable is a do or die fighter I don't even know if this fighter's cardio is going to come into question. So I'll pick him here. However, as a better, whether you're picking that guy or not, you have to keep in mind that if the fight goes past a certain point, he could be in trouble. So whether you're doing something like live betting, 
you know, fighters who gas. I, I love fading those type of fighters. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, one of my biggest ones was, uh, you know, cashing Brian Barberina at near five to one underdog odds against Warley Alves. Um, because Warley Alves always gassed. And even, and this is one of the few times where I actually looked at training footage where like they had the, uh, I believe they were focusing on Souza because uh, they were all at Anderson Silva, Souza, and Alves were all at X Gym at the time. And the thing is on Souza, the, the special, but you can see Warley Alves doing pad work at the end or in the background. And this dude keeps checking the clock. This answers to your cardio question. And I knew he was checking the clock is because I saw him do it in fights. And uh, to, to borrow a line from Dave Chappelle, if a fighter is a habitual clock checker, kind of like a habitual line stepper, if they're a habitual clock checker, I will be looking to fade them to the cows come home. Because it's a professional MMA fight. And if you are more worried about the clock than the fighter in front of you, that says something about you mentally. And the time is important. But if your team is not giving you the time and you're not in sync with them, that says more about you and your team prep as well as your cardio. So I don't give any excuses for checking a clock in a fight. It's definitely a form of weakness as a better, as an analyzer, doing scouting work for sure. So in a pad session, when you have no adrenaline and you're near the fight and you're in shape, and I'm seeing Warley Alves checking the clock to see when his pad session is going to be done. I'm like, this guy doesn't even have enough will to get through his pad session. And Warley Alves has actually just turned a recent corner. He's been doing great, and I'm very happy for him. From, from, from accounts, he seems like, a, a, you know, I, I don't know about his politics, but, uh, you know, he seems like a nice guy to interview. I'm not trying to anti-character this guy. I'm just saying, speaking critically as an analyst, like, when I see that, that's, that's real important to me. Um, so as a better, you can bet live against those people. Or if you don't bet live, but as a better, uh, even if you are picking or betting the other guy to win, but maybe you want to hedge or you just want to sn- snipe your props, I love playing third-round props. And I play it in those matchups where you have the more dad bod grinding guy who's not getting a lot of credit like a Barbarina versus the more athletic guy, explosive, right? What do we say? Betters and general public, what do they love? They love the striker, the hype guy, the young guy. He's got muscles. That means everything, right? Um, I will fade the crap out of that every time for the most part. Uh, and, and if I do, usually you'll get a big giant plus number for a round three prop. Um, you know, so you can either be like, okay, I'm going to pick and bet this guy to win. Or bet him by KO, you're getting plus money there. However, if he doesn't get it, he's going to be in trouble because he's going to have emptied his tank out by the third round. And that's where those third round props come to life. That's where cardio plays in for my analysis. Seems like cardio also plays in for decisions in that if you're dead tired, but you're able to still outland on the other guy, but just because your body language looks so bad, I've seen from both commentators and the judges to score it the other way because you look so bad. Absolutely. I don't know if this is the, uh, a gold standard fight by any means, but it was definitely a popular one with that narrative, which was, and I didn't necessarily disagree with the, the scorecards, but it was Jacare Souza versus Calvin Gastelum, where you could argue that Souza was landing more power shots, um, but he's he was so gassed by round two on that he was just, he looked so visibly gassed that I wasn't sure he was getting credit for anything. Whereas Benson Henderson, where you can say that he's got the long hair trope where the strikes look like they land more. Uh, however, his body language and his ability to no sell things, like that's why Benson Henderson was had so many close decisions and came out of the ones on top that he maybe shouldn't have. So yeah, body language super super important. So then we've talked a lot about output and how output itself can be misleading. Then, and I think because of fight stats, people are looking more at output. Then 
can output itself be a weakness? Because I'm thinking of people like Angela Hill in a five-round fight or Anthony Smith against Glover Teixeira where their pace was just like too high in the first two rounds or first round, and then they really start to slow down later on. So do you ever think, man, this fighter, their output is actually too high? It can be. And it's funny you mentioned the Kraus one. With the Smith and Teixeira, that was early in the pandemic. And Anthony Smith travels between three places, Nebraska, Factory X, and Kraus's gym. So I don't want to put that one completely on Kraus. However, if you notice, Kraus was calling things like an action, like almost like a like he was uh, playing a video game, right? Like yeah. And he actually kind of overloaded his fighter a bit. And something I put together is that wasn't uncommon. Now, you could definitely criticize Kraus for overdoing it for sure. However, that general theme is common. That's why he did it, right? Um, because his fighters put on a pace. And when you hear about them, like Julian Marquez or these fighters, they go, you know, when 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 Kraus accepts you in the gym, you, he really puts you through it. You know, he it, it, despite him still being an active fighter, it sounds like he embraces that teacher role more than anybody else. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here when I tell you that obviously that can be very dangerous from an ego standpoint right the uh, a master standpoint you know what i'm saying um however uh, i would argue that he he seems like from what i'm piecing together from the outside he uses the positives from that in the sense of whether it's that coach uh, or master that attaboy i want to please i want to please my coach thing he he gets that respect which say what you will is a it's hard to get especially if you're an active fighter um obviously if you're a fighter you're going to get that respect but you know you've got your own career to focus on right but B, he uses that to kind of preach like a lifestyle of showing up on time, eating right, making sure you're getting your road work in. And regardless of his meanings, morals, or what values those stand for, I could care less. What I put it together from, a, again, a critical um, analytical standpoint is that I think you need to have your fighters in tip-top shape condition. And I think he understands he needs a full commitment. Not everybody's a super athlete. but if you're an athlete and a fighter and you're athletic enough and a fighter enough to be in the UFC and under his regime or watch, um, that is kind of their meta is, is, is the pace meta from that camp. Um, if you look at their fighters, that's what they're trying to do to you. And in a bunch of different ways, you got weird Tim Elliott style. You've got Krause's own way that he does it. Um, you know, Eric Nixick, who I referenced, knew that Julian Marquez was going to do it. So he actually... Um, his plan was to, to steal their plan and to out volume and outwork them. And that's what Maki Patolo was doing until, like you said, he kind of, Maki kind of worked himself into a hole. He wasn't, he wasn't used to that game plan. But to Maki and Eric's credit, they actually got credit from James without prior, cause they're, they're, they're friendly camps. And so afterwards, they're able to come together. And James was like, you, you, you MF her. You tried to use my game plan against me, didn't you? So they are a very much a pace camp, but. There, like to your point, Sam, there is a cost um, to have that. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see more camps moving toward it. But yeah, there are some outliers right now that are moving toward that meta of output and pace. I think of uh, Alliance too in San Diego, where they, like Dominic Cruz or Angel Hill, rely a lot on pace. But now, as they get older, it doesn't seem like they adjust their style. It's still the same style with older fighters. So yes, like more and more, I don't trust the Dominic Cruz in a five round fight. I don't trust an Angela Hill in a five round fight because I feel like they will burn themselves out. Yeah. And uh heavier, heavy style of training there. That's the gym where I've seen been witness to the pro training quite a few times. Um, and you, Jeremy Stevens is amongst those. God, that guy just, I don't, couldn't see the difference between 
him in a sparring room and him in a fight. That's scary. Um, But, uh, but like, but uh, yeah, yeah. And you're right. It's older fighters. So yeah, that that's, I hope they have less injuries now that they're not in the different building. Cause that was like a, they had these being like a small slippery gym. Oh, and uh, I know when my wrestling coach came over, that's one of the things he really tried to raise some money for Brian Keck, who's geez, another dead coach. There we go. Jeez. Rest in peace. Uh, because that's what some people attributed Dom's knee injuries back in the day to is because that humid, humid little room in there, they had these really bad mats that were just like, just uh, uh, sweat, you know, d- distillers. They were just, just, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. If you talk to old school BJJers from like, who were training in Brazil in the eighties, they'll say the number one cause of injury was slipping on the mat. Yep. Mm-hmm. The oldest, older mats. I don't know what they did and changed them, Sam, but they're so much better at making than making them these days. But yeah, back in the day, it was like, uh, you're trying to steal whatever the gymnasts were using. If you were lucky, I almost want to say they just used some kind of tarp or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Jesus. And depending where you train to like New York, when I, when I was out there, depending, you know, they did a lot of apartment jujitsu training sessions and those got sweaty. Thanks for coming on the show, Dan. I learned a lot. I think everybody, wherever they're listening, have learned a lot. So really appreciate you. Man, I appreciate you and coming on this show. I'm, I'm mad that it took me so long to discover you guys, but uh, I'm definitely going to pick up uh, a double lefty shirt from uh, <laughs> from, your, from, your, from your Southpaw there webcast. That was at southpawpod.com. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I was checking that out. So I'm going to definitely uh, support the ship and appreciate you having me on your little uh, pirate ship here. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter where I'm most active. I'm not a fan of social media, though. You can add me on the other places, but at Dan Tom MMA or my YouTube channel, Daniel Tom MMA, <laughs> Daniel Tom MMA. I could use a subscribe there if I could possibly get it out. But I post all that stuff from the YouTube to my content from Junkie, um, all in the Twitter space. Uh, that's where you can get at me at Dan Tom MMA. You can find Sam's conversation with Dan Tom about MMA gambling and the possibility of fight fixing in the UFC, now on Patreon. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hitting with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Pulse. South Pulse.